0: The Real Investment Show. We're right in the midst of earnings season right now, and of course, that uh, has been really kind of driving markets here over the course of the last few days in particular. Of course, as we got earnings coming in, that's been great. Yesterday, of course, was the first official trading day of the first issued Bitcoin future ETF. I mean... If that's not a mouthful. I don't know what it is, but this is a ETF, an exchange-traded fund that trades f- that's comprised of futures on Bitcoin, not Bitcoin itself. So yesterday it traded very well. Yesterday lots of excitement uh, about people wanting to buy into a Bitcoin future ETF. So uh, B I T O is that symbol. So if you're interested in looking it up, yesterday actually performance pretty good for the first day. Um, ProShares has to be very happy about it. They did a billion dollars worth of volume in one day. That means 500, $500 million worth of buys and $500 million worth of sales all in one day. Not bad. So <laughs> you did a lot of volume yesterday in the ETF issuance. So again, did well. And uh, of course, that has also been helping lift Bitcoin prices. Bitcoin right here near a record, of course, at $63,000. I'm It's down. I'm looking at the screen right now. It's going to be down about Uh, a quarter of a percent this morning after a big run yesterday. So again, um, not surprising there, again, as as people are kind of excited about this whole idea. Of course, this opens up the floodgates now for just a plethora of issuers to come out and start issuing Bitcoin ETFs. So we're going to have way more Bitcoin future ETF contracts out there than there is actually Bitcoin. So... (laughs) You know, the the issue is going to be ultimately someday if somebody wants to collect, that's going to be the real question. Uh, Yesterday, Riot also, uh, Riot Blockchain, they also announced that they're opening the world's largest Bitcoin liquefied, cooled mining plant on the planet. They're going to increase mining for Bitcoin to a whole new level. And this is interesting because China has completely shut down all of their Bitcoin mining at this point. So uh, in China, all the Bitcoin mining, they were the leader in mining Bitcoins. Now that mining has come home to the United States. The United States will now be the number one miner of Bitcoin in the world. And of course, the problem with all this is, is that it's very energy intensive. It requires a lot of electricity. To mine for Bitcoin, and of course, uh, the <laughs> the more computer processors that you have doing it, the better your chances of hashing into the Bitcoin and, and collecting Bitcoin is. So again, it takes just a tremendous amount of energy. Of course, this is problematic for you know those trying to battle climate change because that electricity doesn't come from solar and wind; it's mostly coming from coal. So you know, it's not necessarily you know environmentally friendly to uh, mine for Bitcoin, but uh, the U.S. has now gone back into the lead for mining for Bitcoin. So there you go. Um, U.S. is now number one in something. Um, <laughs> so if the lights dim at your house, exactly, you, if you have know a what's happening Brown, next yeah, door. If you live close to Riot and you have an electricity problem, it's their fault. So anyway, uh, just interesting stories that are out there this morning. Uh, a couple other things going on: um, supply chain disruptions. This is going to be kind of the the story uh not just now but going into 2023 and 2024 that's right doesn't look like we're going to solve these um supply chain problems anytime soon here we're going to talk about that after the break because it was an interesting conversation last night with my two uh, high school teenagers uh they came home from school of course they were talking about supply chain disruptions in class and they can't figure out exactly why everything costs so damn much well I'm going to explain to you why we got ourselves into this situation and it started back today the problem today started in the late 70s and we'll talk about why that we are in that position today. So we'll get into this of course. I'm your host Lance Roberts be right back after the break. We'll talk about supply chain disruptions and why it started back in the 70s. Don't go away. Talking about Supply chain disruptions was interesting because uh, last night I was, you know, at home. I was kind of cooking dinner, and both my uh, teenagers came downstairs. <clears throat> they actually left their room. Um, apparently, they heard that uh, they heard the dishes clinking in the kitchen and food being prepared, so that was their signal to come out of their cave. Um, <laughs> so. But they were we, we kind of got set down and you know I was still cooking dinner and you know they were kind of talking with each other and and my daughter said I tell you the uh, it is crazy what's going on you know with the government right now and I'm like well what are you talking about and she's like well you know I have I'm, I'm taking government in school and I'm like okay this is going to be interesting <laughs> I go well what are they teaching you in government. And it's like, well, I, you know, I went and filled up my car today, and it was like 50 bucks to fill up my car. It's ridiculous. Man, inflation is just crazy. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a problem right now. Prices are going up everywhere. And I said, but why are prices going up everywhere? And I go, this is going to be good. <laughs> right? <laughs> she says, well, I don't know why they're going up. They're just going up, and it's just crazy how much stuff costs. And then, of course, my son has to chime in as well. And uh, they were both complaining about the cost, the high cost of living, because, again, and I kind of chuckled myself because, you know, they still don't have to pay rent, but they do have to pay for their own gas. They pay for their insurance. They have to pay for all their food that they want to go run around and do with their friends. I don't support any of that. Um, They need to learn to be adults. So they're learning to be adults, but they're also learning these valuable lessons of how just how far hard-earned money will go in this economy, right? And it doesn't go very far. By the time they fill up their gas tanks, pay their car note, pay their insurance costs, and then, you know, go out to eat with their friends a couple of times, not a lot left over from their job. Now, they make, they make fairly decent money, right? So they both work for a restaurant, and, and uh, you know, they, they make probably somewhere close to $15 an hour at the restaurant. So, you know, it's, you know, they're, they're making okay money for their age, but, again, it doesn't go very far. And so we got to talking so I asked him again I said so why is it that we have these <clears throat> you know these higher prices and my daughter finally pops up with the right answer and she's like well it's because of all these supply chain disruptions that we've got going on I go exactly I said now why is it though that inflation goes up and my son pops up with the right answer he says it's supply and demand I go you are absolutely right I said y'all did pay attention in class this is awesome I said, so what's the problem? Why do we have too little supply and too much demand? And they did not know the answer. The answer, and most people don't know the answer, is not because of supply chain disruptions. That's the the resultant cause of something that we started back in the late 70s. And you had to actually be in class back in the late 70s and study this in economics back in the 70s and 80s because I don't think they actually teach this anymore. (laughs) But back then, U.S. companies decided that it would be a really good idea to emulate a Japanese form of inventory management called just-in-time delivery. And the difference was, is that in the U.S. at the time, what we would do is we would manufacture a bunch of stuff, and we put it up on a shelf and we'd maintain fairly high levels of inventory. And this allowed us to, to meet demand when it came. So if somebody wants to order a widget. I've got plenty of widgets on my shelf because I've been producing them like crazy. And I can make delivery. And of course, back then when I had to deliver something, it took, you know, a couple of weeks. I had to put it on a truck or whatever, put it in the mail, whatever it was, and it took some time to get there. So having excess inventory was always important back then, but U.S. companies said, you know what, if we can reduce the amount of inventory that we maintain, it'll make us more profitable. And so we began this process of adopting this just-in-time delivery. Of course, as the speed of delivery has been improving over the last several decades, of course, you know, we started with FedEx. (coughs) Excuse me you know, back in the 80s. And when FedEx came around, it was like, well, this is crazy. Who needs stuff overnight? That's ridiculous. (laughs) Of course, today, people don't know what to do if they can't get stuff overnight. It's like, oh my gosh, I've got to wait two days to get it? That's ridiculous. I got to have it now, right? So we have this whole immediacy thing. So just-in-time delivery became much more effective, because we could literally manufacture something on the spot. Order comes in, we can manufacture on the spot and ship it out to the customer and really maintain very little inventory. So my inventory cost really fell a lot. And this really helped boost profitability, of course, lower interest rates, lower rates of inflation, uh, consumers going into a massive amount of debt to buy more stuff that they don't really need. Um, all really helped boost corporate profitability over the course of the last three, four decades. And it's all worked fine and dandy. Just-in-time delivery works great until you wind up with a problem. And that problem, of course, nobody ever anticipated or planned on shutting down an economy. I mean, that just, that was never even in, you know, nowhere in the history book was there ever a precedent where somebody says, oh, Let's just shut down the economy and stop all activity for a cold. And that's what we did. And now all of a sudden, though, there's no inventory. And at the same time that there's no inventory on the shelves because we do just-in-time delivery, we give people $5 trillion to spend in the genius of government And, of course, nobody thought for a second said, okay, look, if I give people a whole bunch of money to spend, this is going to be great because they're going to go out and spend it. The problem is there is literally no inventory for them to buy. And because we've shut everything down now, companies can't produce anything. Now the problem is, is that you have, and, and, and again, as my kids were talking about last night, you have a supply-demand problem. And this is why you have inflation. When there's too much demand and too little supply prices go up for whatever scarcity of item there is available to buy so prices are going up food costs energy costs you name it it's all going up and because we have this a massive amount of artificial demand that was generated by all the liquidity that was pumped directly into the system that's still working through the system It has not completely finished yet so we're keeping the demand rather elevated if you take a look at retail sales Etc. shows you that we're well above what the trend of the economy can actually support. And that's because of that excess liquidity that's in the system. And people are buying stuff with it. And they're doing exactly what they're supposed to. But that that demand is going to fade. And it will fade fairly sharply as we get into 2022. That will take some of the pressure off of companies who are now working as fast as they can to produce inventory. And what will happen now is that we will have a swing from in the pendulum from a supply chain disruption to a supply chain glut as we get into the next couple of years. Now, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take some time. But companies will keep producing now at the current rate because they what, what happens with companies is they begin to expect that the current level of demand is going to remain permanent. So they will keep producing at the current level, expecting the current level of demand to remain. And as the current level of demand begins to fade, they will wind up overproducing inventory. And inventory will slide in the other direction, and and we will eventually have deflationary pressures in the economy rather than inflationary. Now, it's going to take some time. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen next week, next month, next year. It's going to be a while. But probably sometime in late 2022, early 2023, somewhere in there, we'll probably start to see the initial effects of a more deflationary bend in the economy as the supply chain cycle swings in the other direction. Look, everything, and this is and, and this is one of the problems with this kind of panic around, you know, oh my gosh, inflation's here; it's going to be the 70s; it's going to last forever. Even the inflation in the 70s didn't last forever; it lasted for a while. But eventually, all of these things do cycle back in the other direction. So it's going to be problematic here for a while. And this is one of the big risks for the Federal Reserve is that if they began to hike interest rates in anticipation, look, and and the Fed looks at about five different measures of inflation. They uh, They look at their trimmed personal consumption expenditures. They look at CPI. They look at all of it. They have five different measures, roughly, they look at in terms of inflation. All those are telling them that there is sufficient inflation in the economy for them to start hiking rates. And that's true. There is. And they should. They should have been hiking rates in probably fourth quarter of last year. Once the economy started getting back on track, they should have started hiking rates, reducing their balance sheet, slowing the input into the economy to allow the economy just to stabilize But they're always late, and now what they're going to start to do is hike interest rates right at the time that we will swing the other direction on the supply chain disruption plan, and it's going to be an issue. And the economy is going to slow a lot faster than what people expect. So the big risk for a a recession is probably late 2022, early 2023, somewhere around there, as this all swings in the other direction. It's also going to be problematic for corporate earnings. And for stock prices. But again, timing of this is very difficult because you don't know when this swing in the pendulum will occur, but it will occur. And it's a function that because of this just-in-time delivery that we started back transitioning to in the early 80s, has now found the fly in the ointment, so to speak, in terms of what happens when you can't produce supply and you've got excess demand from artificial influences. That's what we're finding out now. And it'll be interesting to see just how companies change for the future. Be right back after the break. There's a few interesting things that are going on right now, I think, that are worth, you know, kind of looking at. And uh, I've got a chart this morning on the outlook on bonds. I-, I put this out on Twitter this morning. And, you know, there's they often say that people don't ring a bell in the markets. And one of the things that we've heard a lot about lately is, is oh, my gosh, interest rates are about to go through the roof because of inflation. Well, not really the case. Yes, we have inflation, as we were talking about the last segment. We do have inflation occurring because of supply chain disruptions, all this liquidity pumped into the market, et cetera. So it's all leading to short-term inflationary pressures. Not surprisingly, that has led to a very negative sentiment on bonds. Nobody wants to own bonds because inflation is going up. So that must mean interest rates are going to go up. Yet interest rates really aren't rising that much. We're about 1.5%, 1.6% right now on the 10-year treasury. Now, the very short end of the curve, those bonds, the two-year, the one-year, the three-month bills, those rates are going up because the Fed's getting ready to hike rates. And that's what that end of the bond market is telling you. But that's creating what we call a flat, flatter, I should say, yield curve. In other words, shorter end rates are coming up, but longer end rates really aren't moving much. But as I said, you know, one thing that you can count on more often than not is that when Wall Street gets all on kind of one side of the trade, whatever that trade is, they're generally wrong. There's an old saying by Bob Farrell, one of his famous rules, is that when all experts agree, something else tends to happen. And that's very much the case, and particularly when it comes to yields. In fact, you know, when you take a look at the outlook for bonds right now, it is the most negative that we've had since the turn of the century. Previous periods of high negativity were July of 2007. Nobody wanted to own bonds because we had this booming economy and everything was fantastic and inflation was coming up and the Fed was going to have to start hiking rates potentially. But it was no big deal, no big concern. And, of course, if you were buying bonds in July of 2007 and selling your equities, um, you would have survived the the 2008 meltdown very well. In February of 2011, outlook on bonds was very negative. And, of course, if you would have held on to your bonds at that point or bought bonds, you actually did very well going into 2012 as we got into the debt ceiling debate. Market declined 20%. Bond yields fell to uh, record lows at the time. Again, in 2013, same thing. Got into the euro crisis. Bonds did very well. February of 2018, as Donald Trump was talking about the trade war. And, of course, going into the end of 2018, the market declines by 20%. Yields fall to a record low. And then October 2021, we're now at negative record sentiment on bonds. My point is is that every time throughout the last 20 years that the market has gotten very negative on bonds, it's been a great buying opportunity to add fixed income to your portfolio. Now, we're talking about specifically the longer end of the curve, the 10-year, 20-year, 30-year treasury at this point. Not corporates, not about treasuries. But to hedge your portfolio what this is telling you, is there is risk in the markets right now and the markets aren't picking it up at this point because despite the fact that there's inflationary pressures right now, that is not only just a issue economically speaking, in other words, it slows economic growth. And again, we're looking at economic growth contracting very rapidly here. But equities are extremely overvalued. Earnings are at risk if we do have slower economic growth because there's a high correlation between economic growth and earnings. And, yes, while earnings appear to be doing fairly well right now, this is still kind of the wrapping up of the post-pandemic shutdown, $5 trillion of injection liquidity into the market earnings boost that we got. That's all going to fade heading into next quarter. Year-over-year comparisons are now very tough going forward. So earnings growth is going to be much more challenging over the next uh, next few quarters, and with valuations very high, this becomes much more problematic. So what bonds are telling you at this point is that there is a there is something not quite right in the markets. Because it, look, if and, and here's the thing, and we've talked about this before. People go, well, bonds are overvalued. Bonds cannot be overvalued. Bonds cannot be overvalued. And here's why. If I go to buy a bond today, I am paying a price for that bond and I get an equivalent yield based on the price that I'm paying. That yield is what I'm going to receive between today and the maturity of that bond. So as an investor... I have to account for inflation risk, credit risk, default risk, all these various risks of making that investment into a bond. And my yield has to justify all those risks that I'm taking. It's particularly the case if I'm issuing debt or if I'm a, a lender and I'm going to loan somebody some money. So it's a, you know, Brent has a company. He wants to borrow money from me. He comes to me and says, Lance, I want to borrow some money. I go, great. I'm going to charge you 3% on this loan or whatever the number is. Well, that rate has to compensate me for the duration of the loan. One year, three year, five years, 10 years, whatever it is. Inflation cost. Expenses, all that I've got to uh, compensate for all those things inside inside that interest rate that I'm charging for that loan. Otherwise, I lose money. So bonds technically can't be overvalued because they have to reflect all these various risks of me loaning money somebody loaning money to somebody at today's rate for whatever the duration of the bond is. Just the way the math works now the big issue here though is what the market's telling you is like oh my gosh we have all this inflation investors are going well you know i don't want to own treasury bonds because interest rates are going to go up because of inflation well what interest rates are telling you is is that the inflationary pressures that we have right now are transitory and they will fade at some point in the future and economic growth is going to slow to somewhere between one and one and a half percent. So the extreme negativity on bonds right now tells you that there's a very high probability that this is probably one of those points in history where you buy bonds and you actually make more money in those than you actually do in the stock market over the next 24 months. We're right back after the break. You know, we talk a lot about corporate share buybacks, and again, there's lots of stuff in the media about how share buy, corporate share buybacks or a return of capital to shareholders. No, it's not. And the reason it's not is simply this, is that if a company buys your shares, you've got cash and they've got your shares, right? But you can sell your shares any day of the week on the open market. So it's not returning cash to shareholders. What it does do is provide insiders an ability to liquidate the grants, the uh, the equity grants that they're given inside the company. So the, the people that actually truly benefit from corporate share buybacks are insiders of companies. And look, there's been studies by the Securities and Exchange Commission and other industries that all show the same thing. but. You know, the media likes to run around and go, oh, it's a way to return capital to shareholders. No, it's not. Because when Apple says, hey, we're going to buy back shares, they don't call you up and say, hey, Bob, uh, can we buy your shares back? And we'll send you a check for your shares and you send us your capital. That's not the way it works. Dividends are return of capital to shareholders. Because a company issues a dividend, they take money out of their coffers and they send it to you. That's a return of capital. Share buybacks or not. But they are a huge inside influence for company executives. And this is why executives have gotten extremely rich over the course of the last decade from corporate share buybacks. But here's something else that you need to know about corporate share buybacks. Right now, the S&P is trading right around $4,500 on on the S&P. Without corporate share buybacks, and there's a great chart out this morning from uh, Pavilion Global Markets, that breaks down the composite, it's the decomposition of returns of the S&P 500 based on the multiple, the valuation expansion, right? So people are just willing to pay more for stocks. The earnings per share of these companies, dividends and buybacks. And what's important to note is, is that ex-buybacks... The market would be right around 2,500 today, not 4,500, which would be much more in line with what you would expect with economic growth around 2% on average, earnings growth, dividends, and earnings and, and, and valuations, and what we're paying for valuations. So it's certainly far less exuberant, right? You know, if you look at it that way, it's like. Wow, so we went from 666 to 2500 over the last decade. And that's certainly not the rate of return that, you know, I would have, have, have gotten otherwise. But, the and we've written about this before, the amount of influence of stock buybacks on the markets has been a major sport. We're going to do roughly a trillion dollars worth of stock buybacks. This was in our article yesterday talking about the kind of the bullish, embarrassed case of the market. And the big driver of the market is stock buybacks. In fact, in 2017, 2018 in particular, stock buybacks made up almost 100% of the net purchases of the market. So just a massive amount of corporate liquidity being used to buy back shares. And of course, what's the benefit of buying back shares? Well, if I don't have really strong revenue growth, which we don't, and if I really don't have very strong true earnings growth, which we don't, how do I make that appear to be a lot stronger than it actually is? Well, I buy back my shares because what we do is we adjust the the denominator so that our numerator, which is our earnings divided by our earnings per sh- by the number of shares we have outstanding that's how we get to earnings per share if i reduce that denominator it makes my earnings look better let me put it this way a company earns a dollar in earnings and they have two shares outstanding let's keep math really simple cuz it's early in the morning so my earnings per share is 50 cents per share right the company and and the uh Wall Street says, Well, I think that your company can earn 75 cents a share this quarter. And I'm looking at my books going, Hmm, I'm going to earn 50 cents a share with my two shares outstanding. So, what I'll do is I'll buy back one share of my stock. Now I've got one share outstanding. So, now my earnings per share, $1 of earnings for one share is a dollar. And I beat earnings. Did I create any more earnings? no did I grow did I grow my business? No did I become more profitable on paper and so that's why companies have been doing this and in an environment where the economy is growing at roughly two percent or less, there's really no incentive for companies to invest capital into creating more jobs or uh, building out more product plant, taking on more long-term liabilities, doing capital expenditures, these type of things. And this is why all that stuff has remained very weak and has been growing at about the rate of economic growth over the course of the last decade. And we keep scratching our heads going, I can't really figure out why we're not spending more on CapEx. You know, the economy is doing great. You know, the markets are doing awesome. Why aren't companies spending more money? Because again, there's no value in doing it. The easiest way to create earnings growth that can beat expectations is simply to buy back my shares. It's the least best use of capital. But it's become a major source of earnings growth for companies over the last five years in particular. Buybacks weren't such a big issue. They were there. You know, in 2013, 2014, 2015, but they were a very small portion of the overall markets. Today, it's just gotten out of hand. Now, mind you that stock buybacks were illegal until the 1990s. The and Exchange Commission had outlawed stock buybacks as a form of stock manipulation after the Depression. And, you know, markets traded pretty much on value, give or take, until the 1990s. And in the 1990s, Bill Clinton comes along and says, <clears throat> you know, we need to fix this executive compensation thing. So we're going to cap executive compensation at a million dollars. And Wall Street said, OK, we'll just start using stock options. So they lobbied heavily. For the SEC to repeal their rule on, on stock buybacks, and of course they did, and then later on that was when you know, this occurred and Bill Clinton went after comp, uh, 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 executive compensation and stock buybacks became the way to compensate corporate executives because they can pay themselves less in terms of salary and pay themselves a whole lot more in terms of stock options. And then, of course, having the company buy those stock options from them is a very lucrative way to increase your net worth. And that's why, you know, we have corporate executives making, you know, $100 million a year. And we, and we, and we decry this problem, right? We say, oh, this is terrible. Corporate executives are just making way more than the average worker. It's unfair, you know, with the top 10% own 90% of the stock market. Well, you're looking at the reason why. It's easy to fix. You just outlaw stock buybacks. And Now, when you do that, you're going to take away a major support of asset prices and the market's going to collapse. And it's going to go back down to value of what the actual value of the market can support. But at that point, the market would start to trade on earnings, dividend, and valuations, which is what it should trade on, fundamentally speaking. But see, we don't want—nobody wants to do that, right? I mean— Corporate executives aren't going to vote for it, and they're the ones that contribute the most to political campaigns, so that'll never pass through Congress. And, of course, Wall Street controls the SEC, so that'll never happen. But it is worth noting that a big driver of this market, ultimately, and probably the driver of the market, ultimately, is what's going on with corporate share buybacks. And, again, it's the least best use of capital. For a company it has no long-term benefit it is an immediate gratification this is simply the same thing as a hit of cocaine right you do it you feel great for a little bit then you crash that's all the benefits you get out of a stock buyback it is not a long-lasting benefit to earnings <clears throat> because every quarter we're adjusting expect, expectations for earnings. And so if I buy back a bunch of my shares and I was supposed to report uh, 80 cents a share this quarter and I report 85 cents a share this quarter because I bought back a bunch of shares, well, next quarter, guess what? It's now 90 cents. I've got to go buy more shares to try to beat that number. You know, it's like that old cocaine commercial where the guy says, I do cocaine so I can work longer, um, you know, so I can make more money, so I can do more cocaine, so I can work. It's that vicious circle. And that's what happens with share buybacks. It's just a vicious circle. And you got to keep doing it, and this is why it accelerates every quarter. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, and we have more and more and more corporate stock buybacks. And the reason is simply because of the fact that you've got to keep doing it in order to beat your earnings. And if you don't do it, you're not going to beat earnings, and then you're going to lose several billion dollars worth of market capitalization. Your stock price is going to go down. All of a sudden, your corporate stock options that you're depending on for your personal net worth aren't worth anything. And that's why we're in this trap. Again, it's an easy fix. The SEC just needs to come back and outlaw those again. They won't. But while we're running around trying to figure out all the problems in the world, this is one of them. Wraps up the show for the day. Get by our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. Send your questions, comments, emails. Let us know what we can do for you. As always, we're happy to help. Of course, sign up for our upcoming uh, seminar on FAFSA forms. So, if you've got a kid in college like me, so getting ready to apply for FAFSA and financial aid, you might want to tune into that webinar. The link is on the website now under our events tab and right on the homepage. Just scroll down to our events. They are all listed there for you that we have coming up all the time here at Real Investment Advice. Have a great day. We'll see you back here for the Thursday edition of The Real Investment Show. See you tomorrow. Monday, Monday, Monday. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.